I am not a fan of kombucha. So. <laughs> but also, I, I know um, I grew up in a Korean church. And so, um, you know, I, I know how people have certain views on certain beverages. And so if that's the case, then I, I like kombucha uh, as well. So, um, hey, well, thank you for having me. Uh, it's, it's great to be here this, this, this morning. Um, uh, I born and raised in Baltimore, um, and th- that is how we talk. With Baltimore, it's, I think the, the, the less you enunciate, uh, the better if, if you're from Baltimore. And so uh, I, I tend to sometimes uh, forget that, you know, I need to enunciate a little better. And so um, yeah, it kind of rolls off the tongue, Baltimore. Um, but it, it's, it's great to be here with you all. Um, my family, um, we, we came in on Friday after, uh, afternoon and spent a couple of days in Philadelphia. And so, um, you know, it's always a, a joy to come here to Philly, the Philly area and just enjoy all the food and the parks and everything. Uh, and so it is great to be here with you all uh, this morning um, to share God's word with you. And so let's uh, let's do that right now. Let's let's look at Jonah chapter four, verses five through eleven. And I invite you just to oh, let's stand and let's read God's word. Apologize. Um, please follow along with me as I read this uh, for us. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plants. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plants? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? The grass withers and the flower falls. Uh, you may be seated. Uh, before I get into this passage a little more, uh, would it be okay if I prayed for us and just ask God to help us to read this, his word well? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, God, we thank you that you are uh, God in heaven, uh, the one who has created all things and who even now sustains uh, all things in the universe. Uh, But we thank you, God, that you are also our loving Heavenly Father, who has moved heaven and earth to draw near to us and to make us yours. So we pray, O God, that you would do that once more. Remind us of your great uh, and unfailing and um, never-ending love for us, Uh, despite the many flaws uh, and imperfections and weaknesses of the one presenting your word this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this past week, uh, hundreds of thousands of people across the country have have centered their lives around uh, a single common truth. 
Now, I'm not talking about some, some, some noble uh, humanitarian uh, cause or, or, or some global uh, tragedy uh, or even some historical medical advancements. No, I, I'm, I'm talking instead about uh, the NCAA basketball tournament, right? better known as, as, as March Madness. Uh, now, maybe, maybe you or, or someone you know has, has spent some time watching some games this week. Or maybe some of you uh, have made some uh, brackets, right, that have maybe since been discarded into the trash can because they were busted by a couple of, you know, crazy upsets. Um, maybe some of you have been cheering for, for your, uh, your, your college that is in playing the tournament. Or maybe some of us have even been, been cursing at the, at the screen because our team has lost, right, like last night as my team lost to, to Alabama. Um, and it's all fun and games for many of us, but, but it's not all fun and games for everyone. According to the outplacement firm, uh, Challenger, Gray, and Christmas, uh, March Madness will cost employers an estimated $17.3 billion in lost productivity. $17.3 billion in lost productivity. And how, how does this happen? Well, it's because many, many people, especially on Thursday and Friday afternoon, were pushing meetings or projects right, to the backgrounds right, while pushing March Madness to the forefront of their minds. Right? Now, most of us can have a good laugh at this, right, unless you're one of those employers that are losing billions of dollars because of this. Uh, but in the grand scheme of things, in the grand, in the grand scheme of things, what is more important? What is more important? Uh, a basketball tournament or our jobs? Right? This isn't a trick question, right? What is more important, right? A basketball tournament or our jobs, right? I think, at least I hope that the most of us, if not, or not all of us, recognizes that logically, right, our jobs are more important than a basketball tournament, right? And yet, yet, how many of us were huddled around a TV or a computer screen or our phones, like watching this, these games as they played out over the past couple of days and neglecting Right, some very, very important tasks to do at work or at home. Right, even though uh, we, we, we know the logical thing that what's more important and what's less important, uh, we, we have uh, elevated what's less important over what's more important. But, but we know that, that this doesn't just apply to March Madness. Right? That this doesn't just apply to sports fans either. Right? Instead, this phenomenon, uh, this, this, uh, this, this disordering of priorities uh, tends to affect a lot of our lives. Right? In fact, uh, the fourth century uh, North African theologian, St. Augustine, called this phenomenon uh, disordered love. And he actually uh, roots uh, disordered love as, as like the root cause of our sin. Right? He says all sins are, uh, in fact, a, a case of disordering love. Right? Elevating what is, what is uh, less important, loving what's less important, more than what is more important. Right? Uh, we, we, we bury our heads into our phones, uh, checking emails or sending emails or, or looking at statistics or, or figures, uh, even when we're at the park with our kids. Uh, we spend hours upon hours watching uh, Physical 100, right? Or, or Singles Inferno, or, or playing the, the latest version of Diablo into the, the late hours of the, of the night. But, but we can't spend 30 minutes going to the gym, 
per week. Or we spend like hours upon hours at the gym every single day, but we can't spend 30 minutes with our own spouses. We, 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 we suffer from uh, disordered love. And, and Jonah, uh, the, the, the main uh, human uh, character in, 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 the, in our passage this morning, he was no different. He was no different. Uh, in, Jonah, in Jonah chapter 4, <clears throat> Jonah has just preached God's word to the, to the people of Nineveh. Uh, and, and afterwards, he, he finds himself sitting outside the city, uh, sitting under the shade of a large plant, when the plant all of a sudden withers up and dies leaving Jonah exposed to the, to the harsh heat and sun. In response to all this, Jonah got angry. In fact, he was very, very angry, that he, so angry that he wanted to die. Now, if, if you've ever um, experienced uh, intense, sweltering, oppressive heat, maybe you've, you've done some like outdoor like lawn work right, in, in, in the heat, uh, and you ran out of water, or you know, you're, you're, you're walking through Legoland or you know, Disney World with your kids, and it's like a hot July day, and, and you don't want to buy like, a $12 bottle of water, right? Uh, if you've experienced the reality of like oppressive heat, uh, maybe you can relate to Jonah's anger, right? I, I know I felt like I wanted to die when I've been in these really hot you know, situations, right? But, but the problem with Jonah in here is, was not necessarily his anger, Right, over his discomforts of having to experience all this heat. The problem here was that Jonah cared more about his discomfort that was caused by this dead plant. He cared more about that than for the lives of the people who were living in Nineveh. Right? He, he cared more about his discomfort, about, about this, this, this seemingly like just insignificant plant, more than these, these, these precious beings that, were, that God created. Right. Jonah had disordered love. And, and on the surface, you know, this sounds like absolutely ridiculous, right? Um, how could anyone care more about their comforts or care more about a, a, a plant uh, than for the life of another human being, right? How, who does that, right? And maybe some of us right now are, are just like silently judging Jonah for being such an idiot, Right? For being so selfish, so prideful. Like, how could you love this plant more than you love people? How could you love your comfort more than the lives of, of, of people? But, but Jonah had his reasons. And in fact, Jonah had some pretty legitimate reasons for why he felt this way. You see, Nineveh uh, was a prominent city in the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians had a very long history of, of being uh, pretty, pretty bad people in general but especially uh, uh, for mistreating the nation of Israel, right, the nation that Jonah belonged to. Right? At one point, even the Assyrians invaded Israel and basically trafficked all the people that lived in Israel uh, throughout the region. And so as a result, Jonah felt about Nineveh in the same way that, that maybe a modern Palestinian uh, feels about modern Israel or about how a Ukrainian person might feel about Moscow. Right? There, there, was, there was a legitimate like, reason for his, his hatred, for, for his, his uh, a legitimate reason why he didn't, like, he didn't want to love these people in Nineveh. And again, maybe, maybe you and I can relate to this. Right? Maybe there are, are some people who have, uh, uh, who have done great harm to you or to your family. Uh, maybe they've, 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 they've uh, defrauded your family. 
maybe uh, their, their kid like punched your kid at the playground. Uh, maybe, maybe they punched you. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we have some people in our lives who we have real good reason to dislike and to want to devalue. But I think more often than not, uh, we tend to dislike and devalue people for, for a lot less noble reasons. Right? Maybe they have uh, different values than us or they look different than us. Maybe they, they don't live up to the same standard of success that, that we have. Maybe they struggle with, with, uh, with addictions or sin struggles that we simply don't struggle with. And so whatever the case may be, we, we oftentimes find ourselves, uh, like Jonah, picking and choosing who we value, who we love, and who we ignore, and who we devalue. But the gospel of Jesus Christ turns this upside down and calls us to extend love, care, and welcome to all. Not just to those who are successful, who are well put together, or, or who, who are good, but especially to the poor, the broken, and the lost. Now, this kind of, of posture, this, this kind of mentality, uh, is kind of su- summed up in the term mercy ministry. Um, I, I love how you all have like a, like a missions month and how you reserve like two of those weeks for, for mercy ministry. It's, it, that's great. Like not, not every church does that. Um, but oftentimes, mercy ministry is, is thought of as like an extracurricular, right? Let's think about it during, during uh, Missions Month. We're going to talk about mercy ministry for, for two weeks in the year. We're going to talk about mercy ministry on a Saturday when we, when we do like a mercy outreach. But you know what? It's, it's, it's like it's reserved for that time, that period. It's kind of like, like an appendage where like we know we have it, you know, like, like our pinky. Like, you know, but it's kind of useful. But, you know, we know it's there for some reason. But doesn't really affect our everyday, right, day-to-day lives, like, like our heart or our mind does. But Jonah 4 tells us that mercy ministry is not just some appendage, an extracurricular, an optional thing that maybe some of us do, but that mercy ministry is at the very heart of Christian ministry. It's at the very heart of, of, our, of our identity as Christians because it's at the very heart of God's love for us. And we see that in this passage in a couple of ways, in three ways. Uh, first, in God's universal love. Second, in God's practical love. And third, in God's example of love. So first, uh, God's universal love. Now in verses six through eight, uh, the phrase God appointed appears three times. Right, first, God ap- appointed the plant uh, to to. Uh, to come up and to, 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 to bring shade to Jonah. Second, God appointed a worm to actually attack the plant and cause the plant to die. And then third, God appointed uh, the, the heat and the sun uh, to, to, to bear down on Jonah and to make his life just miserable. In other words, uh, th- what's going on here is that we're being reminded time and time again that, that these events that happened to Jonah weren't just random events, uh, but instead God was providentially working in all these things to teach Jonah a a very important lesson about his universal love. See, while while Jonah was overcome with anger from from the death of this plant, God said to him in verse 10, he said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. 
Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Basically, God was saying to Jonah, Jonah, you are so emotionally affected by this withered plant that you didn't even create, and that was pretty insignificant. How, how then do you think I feel about the city of Nineveh? Because it has a lot of people and a lot of cows. Now, a, a couple of things are, are implied here in, in, in God's response. First, Jonah did not create the plant, but God created the people and cows living in Nineveh. And second, the cows living in Nineveh are just as important to God as the people. The, the title of, of this morning's sermon is, is, is God Loves Cows. And it's for two reasons. First, I, I'm not very good at titles, I'm not like creative. I know some, some pastors have these really like thoughtful and titles. I'm just like, I don't know, God loves cows. Um, now, it sounds funny, but the second reason why I think this title, title is the title, because it's, it's true. It's very true. And I think it's one of the most important truths that we see here in this passage. God loves cows. You know, why? Because he created them. You know, if, if you, some of you have, might have children and your kids might make uh, artwork at school and they bring it home, right? We have three kids and like we're having to find space to store all their artwork, you know, from like age three to like, you know, whenever. Uh, and whenever we try to like purge our kids' artwork by throwing it away, if our, if our child finds that artwork in the trash can, like there is like endless amounts of rage and anger. Right? They feel so offended because how could I throw away something that they created? Right? My kids love their artwork. In, in the same way, then, uh, God loves cows because he created them. Right? God loves everything he created. Right? There's, there's nothing in this world uh, that God created that, that is somehow like, insignificant to God. Right? Uh, mosquitoes, I, I hate them. Right? Uh, humidity, the worst thing ever. Right? Um, God loves these things. It doesn't make sense to me, to us, but God loves these things because God created them. And so if, if God loves cows because he created them, how much more does he love people who he not only created, but who he created to reflect his image in a way that nothing else does? Right? We are God's image bearers. Right? And not just because we're sitting here in church, not just because we uh, are successful because we're, we grew up in the right family or because, you know, anything else that we've done. God loves us because he created us in the same way that he created all people everywhere. God loves people because he created them. God doesn't discriminate who he loves, right? He doesn't love, uh, uh, he doesn't discriminate in, in what he loves, he doesn't love some parts of creation and not others, right? He doesn't love uh, the eagles, but hates the redskins or the cowboys, right? He doesn't love, uh, he doesn't love our church, but like, hates the one down the road, right? Uh, he doesn't love um, uh, certain people more than others. God loves everything he created. And so God loves cows and God loves people. And, and that would have been very hard for Jonah to hear. Uh, because especially in this, in this uh, uh, situation, because J Jonah did not love Nineveh, right? Uh, in fact, Jonah hated Nineveh. But 
in his hatred, right, Jonah had forgotten, right, the reality of God's universal love didn't just apply to the people of Nineveh, but it also applied to him. See, Jonah was a recipient of God's universal love because Jonah wasn't exactly lovable. Early on in the story, uh, when God called Jonah to go to Nineveh to proclaim the gospel and preach to them, uh, Jonah didn't want any of that. And so he ran away from God. He rejected God. He said no to God and ran in the, in the exact opposite geographical direction. And it took, it took God sending a giant fish to come swallow him up in order for, for, for Jonah to, to change his mind and start going in the direction that God wanted him to go. And then, and then when, when, when Jonah finally went to Nineveh to proclaim God's word to them, to the people of Nineveh, you know, Jonah didn't have like some like, like home run sermon. Right? He didn't have like some like, I don't know, Tim Keller-esque, John Piper-esque sermon to, to get to Nineveh, right? Instead, instead, Jonah's sermon was pretty lousy. It was pretty uh, disheartening. It was pretty like harsh, right? It basically, said, he said to Nineveh, you know, you all are, are sinners and God hates sin, <laughs> Like, and that's like, that's a hard thing for people to hear. I mean, there's no contextualization, right? There's no, like, there's no grace in there, right? And yet somehow God used that lousy sermon to work repentance and salvation in the hearts of the people of Nineveh. And afterwards, Jonah, again, was upset. God, how could you do this? How could you actually, you know, work repentance in these people's hearts? And so, and so he left the city. Uh, in, 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 in a tantrum. And he sat in the shade uh, of, of this giant plant. Right? Jonah was not lovable. In fact, the entire Old Testament is an account of God's universal love for people who are wholly unlovable. Right? God loved Adam and Eve even after they, they messed up his entire creation. God loved Abraham not because he somehow earned God's love or somehow made himself uh, distinguished from the people around him. No, we're just told that God just chose Abraham. God just chose Abraham to love him and to make him into his, his, his chosen uh, patriarch for the nation of Israel. In fact, the same is true of, of all the heroes in the Bible. Right? Noah, Isaac, Jacob, David, uh, Peter, Paul, they were all pretty uh, typically imperfect and messed up people who experience God's universal love. And the same is true of us. We are no different. Right? Uh, we, we read uh, from Ephesians 2 uh, during our assurance of pardon this morning uh, in verses 6 through 7. But earlier on in, 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 that, in that chapter, uh, Paul says this. He says, We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. See, we are recipients of God's universal love. God did not just say, God did not, does not love us because we're here in church. God doesn't love us because we profess faith in Jesus. God doesn't love us because we do all the right things or we, we, we give uh, a big enough tithe. God loves us, period. Hard stop. End of story. God loves us. It, God's love for us is one of the, the, the truest things about us that cannot change no matter what. We can't make God love us any more by, by, by being a better person. We can't make God love us any less if we fail to do things that God wants us to do. He loves us on our best days. He loves us on our worst days. God loves us when we follow him. And God loves us 
when we run in the opposite direction of where he wants us to go. And we know this. Right? We know the reality of God's universal love for us because of what he did for us through Jesus. See, Jesus was the epitome of God's practical love. Verse 5 says that Jonah went out of the city. Again, Jonah was, was so upset with the people of, of Nineveh. He was so upset that, that, that God was actually working salvation in Nineveh that he physically distanced himself from them. Right? He, he literally went out of the city to look at Nineveh from afar. And even while he was in Nineveh, uh, Jonah kept the people of Nineveh at arm's length. Again, he, he wasn't trying to contextualize God's word. He wasn't trying to get to know people. He was just, he was just proclaiming God's word like, like flat out. Right? He was looking down on, on Nineveh. He was, he, he was condescending, right? thinking of the people of Nineveh as, as these lousy sinners who are deserving of God's wrath. He had no, no notion of seeing the people of Nineveh as his equals. Contrast that to God's reaction, God's views on the people of Nineveh. Verse 11 says that God had pity on Nineveh. Now, the word pity, uh, it, it takes a different connotation in, in today's right, uh, vernacular. Right? We think of pity as it's almost maybe like a, uh, not a great thing to have, right? But the word pity here means to be so troubled or so moved by something that you're compelled to take action. If any of us, one of us sees our friend or a loved one fall into a river, right, what would we do? I mean, our hearts would be moved by this, Right? At least I'd hope, right? And we would then spring into action, pick them up out of the water and you know, try to help them, right? And this is what God does for us. His heart was so moved by our, our, our state of sin and brokenness that he was compelled to action. And John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, if anyone, if anyone in the history of, of, of creation um, had their a right, an absolute right to turn their back on creation, to turn their back on humanity, it was God. It was God. Think about it, right? the people who God created uh, to care for and steward creation. Instead, what did they do? Uh, they, they ruined it because of their pride and their selfishness. Then later on, the, the, the people who, who God had set apart to, to redeem the world constantly wanted to be like the world. Even now, the people that God has saved to be his hands and feet, carrying the good news of the gospel in both word and deed to the four corners of the world, we, the church, are often more concerned about preserving our own comforts, our own wealth and resources and our own power and influence in the world. Yet instead of turning his back on us, instead of keeping us at an arm's length, God was so compelled by his love for our broken world and for our broken hearts that he drew closer to the world through Jesus. Jesus came to this world and identified himself completely with us. Right? He, he experienced all the difficulties and disappointments that come with living in a fallen world. He, he willingly subjected himself to all the rules and expectations that we have to live by. Things like he was even baptized and he even worshiped at the temple every single Sabbath. 
He even submitted himself to all the limitations that, that affect us, right? Things like having to eat food right, every so often, having to sleep eight hours a night, these limitations. Jesus himself went through all that willingly to identify with us fully. As, as a 20th century singer, Alanis Morissette once said, in Jesus, God was one of us. And Jesus came um, as one of us to make us into examples of God's love. Now, we, we, we sometimes think of salvation like it's uh, Willy Wonka's golden ticket right, to the chocolate factory. We think that Jesus came to, 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 get us a, um, to reserve a seat for us on, on the train to heaven. And once we die, we can, we can reap the benefits of that and get to heaven. But as we you know, proclaimed right, in our confession of faith from the Heidelberg Catechism, right, salvation is so much more than that. In salvation, we are anointed to be like Christ. We are united to him by faith, by, by grace through faith, to be, uh, to be like him. Right? To, to experience the things that he experienced so that what is true of Jesus can also become true of us, especially in how he loves. Right? So, so if we've experienced God's universal love for us, Right, through the practical love of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, then God is inviting us. He's anointing us to now love others in the same way. Especially, especially as we do mercy ministry. Right, just as God had pity, how he was compelled to action by the, by the, by the plight of the, of the people in Nineveh, we too then need to be moved to action by the needs of the world and the people around us. Uh, we have to fight against our cynicism or indifference that often creeps in as we work with people who are in need. And then we need to instead fight for compassion and empathy. And when we can't do that, we need to pray. We need to pray that God would soften our hearts and make us more compassionate. See, mercy ministry isn't just about trying real hard to love people. But instead, it's about responding to God's love for us. It's about relying upon God's love for us and the power that he gives to us in his Holy Spirit that he gives to us because of his love in order to reflect that love by loving those around us in the same way that God's loved us. And this requires, then, like God, uh, patience. Right? I mean, God has been in the business of loving people who are unlovable for thousands of years, and we are still a mess. So we do mercy ministry we have to be patient. People don't tra get transformed overnight. You know, it, it's a long and lengthy process. It is discomforting. You know, um, sometimes at night I have to go into my, 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 my kid's bedroom because, they, you know, they're having like a nightmare and they sleep in their little kid bed and it is discomforting, right? It's, it's uncomfortable. I hate it. Jesus left, left heaven to come down to earth to take on humanity. I mean, that is like the epitome of discomfort. In the same way, that mercy ministry is going to—it causes discomfort, right? It's—it's it's messy, uh, it's costly, it's—it's um, it's expensive, not just like financially, but time-wise, emotionally, mentally. It's not easy. But as we do this kind of mercy ministry, as as we think about mercy ministry, not just as like a, a program that we do one 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 day a week or one one weekend, uh, like two two weekends a, a year, but as as the, the response to God's love for us, we find that, that people around us who are in need um, are not just projects to be fixed, but people to be loved. 
And there's also a, a, a there's no such thing as a one size fits all way to love anyone, right? Um, if you're married, you know this, right? You can't just like get your spouse like a the same gift that everyone else gets their spouses and expect everything to be okay, right? We we learn to love people individually, right? Distinctly, contextually, right? In the same way that there is no one size fits all form of mercy ministry, right? Um, uh, it means uh, that that we need to like think about who the people that we are that we're, that we're that we're helping, what their needs are, what their actual needs are, and think about real ways to contextually meet those needs. Right? Uh, in verse 11, God describes the people of Nineveh as people who do not know their right hand from their left. Now, this means that the people of Nineveh uh, lacked a certain level of understanding. Right? They, they were like, underdeveloped in some way, right? emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Right? They just weren't like fully finished products. And these are the people who God loved. In the same way, this is who God is calling us to love. People who are unfinished products. Right? People who, who, who aren't going to get with the program immediately. People who it takes time and, and effort and, and commitment and patience to fully love in the ways that they need to be loved. And this, this means that mercy ministry also has to be practical. In other words, uh, thoughts and prayers have to be accompanied by tangible and contextual help. Right? Um, and this all comes out only through relationships. Right? Yes, you know, uh, food pantries. Uh, yes, donating clothes. Yes, you know all these. Things. These are great things to do, right? And I'm not, I'm not saying don't do those things, but not everyone needs a new jacket, right? Not everyone needs uh, some some canned food, right? Everyone has distinct needs, and those things can only be known through relationships, through sitting with people and and actually uh, listening to their stories, actually walking with them uh, through life, hearing the exact things uh, that they need. And lastly, mercy ministry has to be an invitation to community. Right? In the same way that God sent Jesus to bring us into community with him, the goal of mercy ministry should be to invite people to experience deeper community. In other words, mercy ministry is not just about us helping them, but it's about us helping one another. And over time, it, it, it becomes clear if mercy ministry is being done like this, if it's being done in a way that's us helping one another or if it's, it's being done as us helping them. See, when it's, when it's done as like us helping them, uh, the, the, the distinction between us and them, those who are helping and those who are being helped, that distinction becomes clear. The walls between us go, go deeper. Right? Uh, known, uh, Jonah and the people of Nineveh stay at arm's length. But when mercy ministry is done in a healthy way, in a way that reflects God's heart for us, that distinction begins to dissolve. And when that happens, we see our community change. And we see our hearts change. No longer do we, do we just think of people as like, someone received my help, but we, we, we start seeing people as our brothers and sisters. Right? Um, and that's, that's so important for us. And again, we're thinking about union with Christ. That's what that's about, right? We, we do these things that, that God wants us to do, that God calls us to do. And as we do those things, we actually start resembling Christ in more ways. You know, and so we've been thinking about what the church looks like and what it will, what it will look like. You know, Revelation 7, 9 gives us a very compelling picture of what, where we're heading to, what the church will look like. Right? It reminds us that in heaven, uh, church will not just be like, you know, cornerstone here, another church there, 
Instead, it'll be one church, one body of Christ gathered together in one place made up of people from all tongues and tribes and nations worshiping and proclaiming the goodness of God in their, in their tongues, with their uh, expressions of worship. A multi-everything people of God gathered together to worship uh, and to proclaim the goodness of God. And when we open up our hearts to love people in the way that God's loved us, we can start seeing that change, that seeing that reality happen as a foretaste of heaven in our own community. This is what God is calling us to do. And so if, if you notice, um, Jonah chapter 4 uh, ends rather abruptly in verse 11. Right? In fact, verse 11 is not only the last verse of this chapter, but it's the last verse of the entire book of Jonah. Right? Uh, God confronts Jonah about his disordered priorities, his disordered loves, um, and we don't know how Jonah responds. Right? Right? God compels Jonah and says, hey, I love, I love the people in Nineveh and, the, and all the cows as well. And like, I, for me, I'm, I'm dying to know how does Jonah respond? What will he do? Will, will, will he double down on his lack of pity towards the people of Nineveh? Or will he repent of his sins and love the people of Nineveh in the same way that God has loved him? Now, we don't know how, how Jonah responds. Maybe when we get to heaven, we can ask him, right? Jonah, what did you do? How did you respond to that? And as uh, C.S. Lewis loves to say in, in, his, in, in his books, um, that is Jonah's story. And that's his story to know and not ours. But we know our story. We know what our, where our hearts are at. And I think this morning, God is asking us the same question. He's presenting the same situation to us. That will we keep people at, at arm's length? Will we open up our hearts in a superficial or performative way? Will we be indifferent to those in need around us? Or will we love people? Will we have pity on the broken, the needy around us? Will we love others in the same way that God has loved us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we um, do thank you, God, for the ways in which you loved us unconditionally, universally. We pray, oh God, that as we um, just wrestle and, and, and grapple to understand that, oh God, that your, your spirit would just compel us.